What I would like to talk about this evening is happiness. I think in Buddhism, as in so many other spiritual traditions, we end up talking so much about suffering and limitation, about hatred and greed and delusion, about anger and conflict. But it's at times easy to forget that this path is actually all about happiness and it's all about freedom and it's all about peace. Remember there was a period in my own training where my teacher decided that it would be useful for us to have a more intimate and deep understanding of hell. So we spent, I think it was a six-week period where every day uh, we had instructions and talks on the, the different hell realms and how to get there and what would happen to us there when we arrived. And I remember, you know, at one level perhaps it was motivating, and I remember feeling at the end of it that I, I could have written a book about hell in endless detail. But what I didn't feel any closer to was understanding really the nature of happiness and how to get there. And I think when many of us set out on our own journeys, our own inner journeys, we have different motivations and we have different aspirations, obviously, all of us. And yet, somehow, I feel we do often share in the hope and the wish that this path and that this inner journey will actually be one that brings us greater happiness, that teaches us the nature of happiness, that perhaps reveals to us how to be at peace with ourselves, how to live in peace in the world, how to have access to joy, to delight, and how to be able to share that in our lives with the people that we meet, the people that we come in contact with. Even many of the, you know, the central kind of um, foundations of this path, which emphasize freedom, which emphasize liberation, which emphasize the sacred, that there is something sacred in life. I mean, our associations with all of this is that in this understanding, there will be happiness. There will be peace. There will be joy. And so we begin in different ways. We begin our journeys. We begin retreats. We begin different practices. And what do we find? Sometimes we feel a little sorry that in the very beginning we don't suddenly have access to these realms of happiness. Instead, we often feel that we're facing a certain task, the task of freeing our hearts and our minds from fear and from self-centeredness and from confusion and from anger. 
And I think sometimes when we turn our attention inwardly and when we meet turmoil and we meet our demons and we meet our holding, we perhaps come to accept that maybe we just have to postpone happiness until we've completed this more solemn and momentous undertaking of freeing ourselves from our imperfections and weaknesses. And I think sometimes when you look around on a retreat, you know, and you look at the faces of your colleagues, and you look into the eyes of people that you're sharing this space with, and sometimes people look so serious, sometimes they look even miserable. And I think sometimes there's, felt there's a kind of unspoken agreement that we'll perhaps all be miserable together now so that we can be happy together later. The Buddha said, this path is the path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. I think sometimes it is helpful to remind ourselves that the the peace and the happiness that the Buddha spoke about and that this path is concerned with, it's not a future peace and it's not a future happiness. Nor is it ever mentioned that our capacity to suffer or that suffering is somehow a kind of spiritual stepping stone to future peace and happiness. Nor is it mentioned that peace and that happiness is dependent upon our ability to arrange our worlds and to arrange our minds in such a way that there's no arising of the difficult or the unpleasant or the challenging. The peace and the happiness that is spoken about is the peace and the happiness that is available to us and offered to us in each moment. The happiness of simplicity, of not needing to rely upon complexity, of feeling connected with really the heart of ourselves, the heart of life, the essence of things. The happiness of the quieter delight in just being, not being endlessly involved in becoming this, becoming that, becoming someone, becoming something special. The happiness that is found in renunciation, letting go of so many of the the burdens, the descriptions, the images, the histories, the past that at times we carry around like great heavy extra baggage in our lives and limits our way of seeing, our way of being. The happiness that we might find in aloneness, in knowing a place within ourselves, within our own hearts, where we feel a true sense of sanctuary. And yet where we also feel a true sense of connectedness with all life. An aloneness of not 
depending, not relying for understanding of ourselves or seeing ourselves upon anyone else. The happiness that we can find in sensitivity, you know when you can just walk here and sometimes you can be so deeply and remarkably touched by just a simple thing that you see, that you hear, the sound of a bird, the sound of a, the sight of a flower unfolding, that quality of sensitivity in which we feel such a deep intimacy with other people, with the world around us, with ourselves, where there's no filter of busyness and preoccupation. The happiness of openness. Moments in our days, moments in our meditation, when perhaps the, the busyness of our mind stills and we really make no distinction between our capacity to listen to the sound of a bird and to listen to someone coughing. That we're not making, that there's a freedom from prejudice, that there's that quality of open-heartedness. That kind of happiness, that sort of delight in being, delight in being present, is really what meditation is so much about. It is not a future destination. There are moments when we have many glimpses of it, moments when we feel that true sense of connectedness, of our hearts opening, our own inner stillness. And in that, there is a sense of something sacred, a sense of presence. This quality of happiness, or this depth of happiness, is in so many ways rather alien to our conditioned perceptions of happiness. I feel many of us learn, or we come to believe, that we have to work for happiness, or that we have to earn happiness, or even that we have to pay for happiness. And often, I think, we come to believe that happiness has a great deal to do with personal power. Our own personal power, our power to avoid the unpleasant and to attain the pleasant. Our own personal power to get rid of and to avoid the difficult. Our power to achieve, to redecorate, to rearrange our worlds according to our our desires and our ambitions, our power to realize our desires and our wants. Often I was very conditioned to believe that happiness is a result of this kind of power, this kind of self-centered power. And unfortunately, that conditioning often leads us to be burdened by very limited ideas of what happiness is and carrying those burdens, then our search for happiness often feels like a very complicated process, which is why it seems to exist in the future, a search that at times we pursue with great earnestness, and yet often it just feels so elusive in our lives. It's a little story I'd like to tell with you about a fish. Excuse me, said an ocean fish to an older fish. You are older than I, 
So can you tell me where to find this thing they call the ocean? I've looked everywhere, in the depths and in the shallows, near the shore and in the center. The ocean, said the older fish, is what you are in now. Oh, this, said the disappointed fish, this is just water. And he swam away to search elsewhere. Sometimes the earnestness that we bring to our search for happiness may very well blind us to actually understanding the nature of happiness and to actually understanding the nature of unhappiness. (coughs) So often we equate unhappiness with being something wrong. There's something wrong if we're unhappy. And our immediate response, again, which is often very conditioned, if there is something wrong, then it is our responsibility to fix it, to make it right. And again, these notions of rightness very much rest upon this whole idea of personal power. If we feel discontented, if we feel unhappy in some way, if we feel unfulfilled in some way, we start to look for what is wrong. We look either in the world around us, in the people that we're with, or we look into our own, uh, and we look into our personal world, the outer world of objects and relationships and lifestyles, or we look inwardly for what is wrong. What can be wrong if I feel unhappy? It's perhaps something wrong with my thoughts, my feelings, my history, my experience. And we look for, for, something, for what is wrong with the idea of altering it. So that we can arrive or reach some destination or arrival point at where everything will be right. Hopefully everything will be right. And this is not to imply, of course, that everything in our world, both outwardly and inwardly, is wonderful and terrific and acceptable. There can be a great deal, both in the outer world and in our inner world, which leads to pain, which leads to fear, and which leads to sorrow. And all of us need to be able to have the courage and the wisdom and the clarity to be able to say no to this, to acknowledge that there is that which is perhaps unacceptable if it leads to sorrow and to fear. But apart from that, I think it is helpful to reflect on this notion of our own well-being and our own happiness and our own capacity to be. Whether that well-being and whether our capacity to be is really dependent upon the objects, inwardly and outwardly, that we are in contact with. Because certainly we are conditioned to believe and seduced to believe by our culture that our happiness and our well-being does indeed rest upon the quality and the number of objects we're in contact with, inwardly and outwardly. This myth, this myth is what motivates so much of the busyness and the restlessness in our lives to have, to become, to, pos- to possess. 
all of those activities of having, becoming, possessing, becoming uh, can become such a mis- mission in our lives. And it's a kind of restlessness which endlessly leads us to try and rearrange our world, you know, functioning in our lives as a kind of chronic interior decorator to make everything perfect, to make everything right, to rearrange the furniture endlessly, to seek always for the more promising, the more exhilarating, the more exciting experience, because surely in that there is happiness. Surely in that, that is where we will find satisfaction. And when something ceases to offer us this kind of excitement and satisfaction, then it feels okay just to discard it, to reject it, to turn away from it. This is worthless, this is valueless, this offers me nothing. Now, we've had enough life experience to perhaps have basically learnt the fruitlessness of this pursuit in our outer lives. Um, but we tend to repeat to some extent that search and that kind of rearrangement in our inner lives and our own journeys. Often we find ourselves sitting in the seat of the judge, alert for what is wrong and seeking to make it right. And in, because when it is right, then we feel we will be happy. What do we judge as being wrong? You know, when you have that reaction that something is wrong, what is it that we are calling wrong? Sometimes or many times it is those things that we can't accept, those things that we label as being unwelcome. Sometimes it's those things we label as being boring. This is wrong. Sometimes what is wrong is what we label as being unpleasant or threatening in some way. Or sometimes just the thoughts and the feelings that really don't flatter us. You know, if you have thoughts or feelings that really don't feel very flattering about who we would like to be. Anger, jealousy, greed, resentment. They're not particularly pleasant companions. And again, how often in the seat of the judge we say, my job here is to fix this, to alter it, to make it better, to make it right. The list often seems endless, and so does the task. It is no wonder, then, that often in retreats or, you know, in in spiritual circles, you get this kind of heaviness and earnestness and sometimes even righteousness because there's so much to do and so much to fix and so much work to be done. And often, often that leads too to the feeling that happiness just must wait when every day or every sitting seems to bring us some kind of new and unwelcome revelation about what is wrong with us. You know, there's that wonderful saying about, you know, why is self-knowledge always bad news? You know, why do when we look inwardly, do we never seem to get any good news? You know, instead there's this and there's that and there's all these things that are wrong with ourselves. And sometimes it often, you know, getting into this kind of frame of mind, it really seems that there's not much purpose in meditation unless we're fixing something that's wrong. You know, it's almost like regarding a retreat as like a time for an inner tune-up like taking your car into the service station, 
you know, so that you will come out as a more smoothly functioning human being. It's important, I think, to recognize that this busyness and at times this desire to fix it, the setting up of inner goals of excellence, these inner goals of spiritual excellence, that this approach is really being conditioned by a very particular belief system. And the belief system that is conditioning it is that what is at stake here is my happiness and that I cannot be happy until I have reached this perfection, which means fixing that which is wrong and altering it. And underlying that, of course, is another belief system, that unless I do this, I will somehow sink into passivity or become a, a kind of thoroughly despicable person unless I've somehow achieved this goal of excellence. Now, I feel it is really important to be very cautious, very questioning of this approach in meditation, because I think it's understandable that it will always lead to postponement. And very much at the heart of this, of course, is I. I would really like to have a flattering self-image. I would really like to turn my attention inwardly and be really pleased by what I see, be really able to praise myself. And so much of this kind of doing and fixing tends to be a kind of reinforcement of this center. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no value in reflection, no value in inner exploration, no value in developing the wholesome and the skillful and, and the, all of that which contributes to well-being. The more important question is, can we nurture all of that? without having this belief system that somehow I must become perfect, that I must achieve some kind of excellence in order to be free, in order to be happy, in order to find peace. Can there be the nurturing of the skillful and the wholesome without the background of these belief systems in which we invest so much and which bring upon our heads so much judgment and so much self-denial and so much self-negation. You know, sometimes people get the idea that they're not doing anything in meditation, that they're working on something. And some, be some even believe that personal perfection is a prerequisite for enlightenment. And so we struggle, and that's what struggle in meditation is really about. That's a lot of what struggle in meditation in, in our lives is about. It's bouncing between these notions of right and wrong, of perfect and imperfect. Take concentration. Now, concentration is an interesting kind of area in a retreat. Because, you know, we suggest again and again that it's really quite useful to be attentive. You know, and everything we do here, you know, we're cultivating attentiveness, you know, and, you know, you hear us up here like, like a kind of broken record, you know, coming back to your breath, you know, paying attention, being mindful, you know, and obviously there's some message here that it's actually important to develop some level of attention, some focus, some concentration. Now, in the beginning, this sets up quite a dilemma. 
Because although we may have the intention to be attentive, it seems pretty elusive. And we experience the mind being endlessly drawn into dwelling, into preoccupation, into fantasy, into images. And the conclusion, of course, that seems obvious is that after all of this stops, after this busyness and this activity stops, then I'm going to deepen in meditation, then I'm going to be concentrated, then I'm going to be happy, then I'm going to be getting somewhere. Again, we are assuming that concentration and attention, very much as we assume happiness, is somehow reliant upon our ability to subdue the difficult, the challenging, and the unpleasant. Now, it is so easy in a retreat for people to absolutely tie themselves into knots over concentration. Can I do it or can't I do it? Can I concentrate? Can't I concentrate? You look into incredible knots about it. It becomes a whole arena again of right and wrong. You know, if I have ten minutes with six, you know, if I have six breaths in a row, I'm doing it right. If I've got three breaths in a row, I'm doing it wrong. You know, and again, these kind of judgments and all the rest of it comes in all over a little bit of breathing, a little bit of attentiveness. It's a little bit of a mirror of what else goes on in our lives. Now, attention, I would actually be so bold as to say, is something that is extraordinarily simple. Extraordinarily simple. It is no need for these knots that attention is the natural and the organic expression of the happy mind. The Buddha once said that in the mind that is filled with happiness, attention has found a foundation. And again, this is extraordinary because we kind of think that after I'm attentive, then I'm going to be happy. But no, in the mind that is filled with happiness, attention has found a, found a foundation. The happy consciousness is naturally attentive. It is naturally attentive because it delights in being present. It doesn't have to work at being present. Because when we are actually happy, we have no desire to be anywhere else but present. No desire to be with anything else other than just what is. Now the desire to move away from what is, towards what is not, is actually the movement of the unhappy consciousness that is tied up in its ideas of right and wrong, of acceptable and unacceptable, tied up in its ideas of what is welcome and unwelcome. This is what is creating the movement. This is what is creating the busyness. This is what is creating the difficulty in being attentive. It's this kind of underlying myth about what is right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable, welcome and unwelcome. And tied to this belief, 
Again, we start thinking that our well-being and our attention is dependent upon the content and the number and the quality of objects that we're in contact with. So I'd like you just to look at that if you're sitting. Just to look at what happens around these ideas. Unhappiness stirs movement. It stirs restlessness towards something or away from something. Happiness when we actually feel happy, I don't know if you've had a moment today or yesterday, or certainly there have been moments, I'm sure, when you've experienced happiness. And then how easy, how we rest eagerly in the present moment, with a sense of contentment, just with what is. Unhappiness carries a, a burden of belief that happiness and concentration is dependent upon modification. You know, when I get rid of this thought pattern and get a better one, when I get rid of this mind state and get a different one, that kind of belief or need, believing the need for modification, of course, always sets us in motion. It, it has a kind of stirring quality. It always sets us in motion. Whereas happiness actually knows great stillness, not the absence of thoughts, not the absence of feelings, not the absence of mind states, but a great stillness with them, a delight in that stillness. Just reflect perhaps a little upon our relationship to the present moment. Why do we feel unhappy at times in the meditation? What, what leads to those moments of feeling unhappy, of discontented? Often those feelings are disliking, not wanting, feeling aversion for what we're actually experiencing, thinking this should be different. I should have a different kind of thought. I should have a different kind of feeling, a different kind of experience. Now this should, this grand word should, always carries with it another companion. And the companions of the word should are rejection and denial, neg negativity and avoidance. And so when we have carrying that word should with its companions, then our relationship to the present moment when we feel there is something here that is not acceptable, not welcome, not spiritual in some way, what our relationship is, is that we feel we have an opponent. And our opponent, it is, perhaps our thoughts, perhaps our mind states, perhaps our, our feelings, perhaps our bodies. We don't like it, we feel aversion. We feel it is an opponent. We have an adversarial relationship. And in that, we sense that our well-being, our happiness, is reliant on overcoming or subduing our opponent in some way. This is the inner battleground. It takes place not only in meditation, it takes place in many places in our lives. So we struggle, struggling with our thoughts, our memories and images, trying to make them different. And why do we do that? Why does that struggle go on? Why do we find ourselves having so much difficulty with a particular thought or feeling or an image, why, why does that lead to such an inner kind of battle? Often because we believe that who we are is defined by what we are experiencing. 
Therefore, if there is anger, an angry thought, we believe, I am angry. I'm an angry person. If there's resistance, we may feel or believe. You know, I'm a defensive and aggressive person. If there's greed, then this is who we feel ourselves to be. And we don't like it. We don't like it. It doesn't fit in with all our models and our images of everything that's praiseworthy in life. So then we see, then I must be different. I must change the thoughts so I can change myself. I must alter the thoughts so I can alter myself. Some that we see it in relationship to the present, we also see it in relationship to the much bigger field. We see it in relationship to the past. I am who I am now because of what I have experienced in the past, because of my personal history. I think what is really radical in meditation is the emphasis of the possibility of transformation in this moment. In actually seeing that this moment we are actually experiencing now is our next moment's personal history. The way that we respond in this moment, the way that we react, the way that we cling or the way that we let go, the way that we close down or the way that we open, the way that we resist or the way that we extend sensitivity, that is what we take into the next moment. And I think we can see that the possibilities of transformation, and transformation is about happiness and understanding and wisdom and, and peace, that the possibilities of transformation can actually only lie in this moment. There is a difference, a vast difference between inner manipulation on the basis of aversion or clinging and the inner transformation that comes through insight and letting go. Manipulation and alteration is all about reinforcing the eye center. Letting go is about seeing the emptiness of that center. As long as we have opponents, we will always be filled with struggle. I'd like to read you this poem by Chang Chang Su. It's called The Empty Boat. If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their own skiff, even though they are a bad-tempered person, they won't become very angry. But if they see a man in the other boat, they will shout at them to steer clear. And if the shout is not heard, they will shout again and yet again and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, they would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. How would our lives be? How would our meditation be if we were to empty our boats and stop shouting? Stop shouting at ourselves. Stop shouting at ourselves with our likes and dislikes, with our judgments and our prejudices and our images and our 
and our ambition. What would our meditation actually be like? What would happen to fear? What would happen to anger? What would happen to greed? What would happen to selfishness? What would happen to resentment? If we stop shouting at them, if we stop perceiving them as opponents, there would be a great change. There would be a deep and a profound change. In that, we are providing the space. We are providing the compassion. We are providing the environment in which change can take place. Through wisdom, through seeing, through understanding, of its own accord, in its own way. If you look at what unhappiness is, unhappiness, is not necessarily because something is wrong. Unhappiness is actually the nature of separation. Unhappiness is the nature of disconnection. When we feel separated on a moment-to-moment level from what we want, what we desire, what we strive for, when we feel separated on a moment-to-moment level from what we feel we need, demand, depend upon, rely upon. When we feel separate in larger ways from the world around us, from other people, when we feel separate from our own true nature, from our own possibilities, this is the nature of unhappiness. Unhappiness is disconnection. It is distance. And because of that separation, then it will experience frustration and resistance. And that is when we create opponents. Meditation, I think, really can reveal to us that this struggle is not necessary. When we step out of the struggle, when we trust ourselves, trust our own wisdom, when we just try, just a little, on a moment-to-moment level, just letting go of our shoulds, of our beliefs, of our myths, that happiness lies somewhere else, that happiness is dependent upon fixing what is wrong, when we let go of all of that, just on a moment-to-moment level, it's a major renunciation because so much of our lives is being built around struggling and fixing and doing that somehow it feels very risky just to let go of that. You know, there's that, that wonderful Zen saying, a great Zen master, he said, When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the beautiful moonlit sky. We often think that we have so much to lose, that if I'm not doing this, who will I be? If I let go of my beliefs about happiness and unhappiness, about doing and achieving, who will I be? Let us just try it. Meditation is an invitation. It is simply an invitation no longer to define ourselves by our judgments, by our standards, by our likes and our dislikes. To step out of that, to open our minds and our hearts to the dance that is unfolding. To let ourselves be touched by that. To welcome it. To have that unconditional openness. Then we see, actually, it, it, 
It doesn't necessarily happen that thoughts cease, that feelings cease, that responses cease. No, they don't. They may very well listen, lessen, because so much of the thinking and the doing is revolving around our myths and our belief systems. But even when the thoughts and the feelings are present, when we cease to struggle, we find we have an enormous amount of spaciousness, enormous capacity to embrace and to accommodate what is. When we are not defining ourselves by them, not jumping to those conclusions of this is what I am, they dance, they arise and they pass, they appear and they unfold. They bring to, us, uh, bring to us their own messages, their own teaching. They are vehicles to understanding. And we find within that relationship a wonderful sense of peace, of harmony, of delight that is not dependent on getting rid of the unpleasant or the challenging. It's not dependent upon only having the pleasant and the flattering. It is the happiness of being present, the delight in that simplicity of just being present. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings live with happiness. May all beings live in peace. If we have just one or two minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.